did those presidents uh, of those universities, did they think of others first when they gave those answers? As people were calling for the genocide of Jews and, and, and Antifada uh, and shouting from the river to the sea on campuses where people are fearful for their lives, are they thinking of others first? I don't think so. The questions you've all been asking are now being answered. Welcome to another edition of It's All About Who You Know, where influential people talk about sports, faith, and more. Your host is a former Oregon State wrestler, an MMA fighter, and a wrestling coach. Brought to you from Las Vegas, Nevada, here's your host, Christian Robertson. There we go. That's better. Hey, good to see you, buddy. It's good to see you too, Christian. Hey, I just want to give a quick shout out to our buddy Steve. Um, have you read his book yet, Steve Barrett? Or did you get a chance to look over it? I've not read his book, but it's on my list. And I just spent <clears throat> about 10 days with him Yeah, in Kazakhstan, which I would say 10 days with Steve is actually better than the book. No, no offense. <laughs> <laughs> Spending ten days with him, you know, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, getting a chance to serve alongside him. I would uh, no uh, disrespect to his book, but I, I would choose that time in person right. with him any day of the week. Yeah, no, it's cool. So I, you know, I told him I would promote the book and everything, but it's the unlikely missionary. If anybody gets a chance, it'll be linked below. It's on Amazon. Um, but appreciate Steve. You know, shout out to Steve for. Uh, getting us in touch and just getting this whole thing set up. So great guy. I had the privilege of, it's funny. I have a funny story about Steve. So in high school, he came to our wrestling room. He knew a buddy of mine and I introduced him at uh, FCA and he just ragdolled me at practice, like just beat the crap out of me. And I was a big guy. I mean, I wrestled 220 in high school, heavyweight in college, and he just destroyed me. And then probably five years later, we go on a mission trip together and I'm standing at the gate waiting to get on this uh this flight with all the athletes and action guys and lo and behold there's steve and i was like hey i don't know if you remember me but uh you know we're gonna have some problems on this trip because uh last time we met you beat me up pretty bad so <laughs> and you're coming back for vengeance yes i was i was like i'm a division one heavyweight now so it's not gonna <laughs> but uh how is your day going day's going really well wednesdays I don't typically go into the city, meaning uh, Philadelphia. I live in Media, Pennsylvania, which is about 13 miles southwest of the city. So Wednesdays, uh, we don't get on the mat. And then this particular Wednesday is we're getting prepped to leave tomorrow to go to the Senior Nationals. Gotcha. We're in Fort Worth, Texas. And when I say we, <clears throat> it's our team, the Pennsylvania Regional Training Center, which that's a lot of words, so we call it the PRTC. <laughs> So we try to keep the PRTC for short, but we just see ourselves as a, a professional sports team in, in Philadelphia. And we are taking five guys to the senior nationals tomorrow. And those five guys in weight class order will be Joey McKenna, 65 kilo. And then Tyler Berger and Doug Zaff will wrestle 74 kilo. Okay. Then we'll have Dave McFadden and Mark Hall wrestle 86 kilo. Wow. So we're getting prepped to go there, and, and that's a it's an important tournament for us because the top five guys in that tournament qualify for the Olympic trials, which will be in April in State College, Pennsylvania. Wow, awesome! So everybody's prepped, ready to go. Now you are from Amarillo, Texas, is that right? I was born and raised in Amarillo, Texas. Okay. Where... Do you still <laughs> get out there quite a bit? Not as much as I'd like to. I mean, quite a bit's probably two or three times a year. Okay. But I miss, I miss home. I miss, yeah. I just miss the simple life, you know, living in one of the largest cities in the United States, you know, outside of Philadelphia and going into the city. And I just miss the, the sunsets over the flat yeah. horizon where, you know, you can see his land as far as I can see. You know, I miss my dad, you know, <clears throat> my family are there. I miss, some of my best friends that I've known since I was six years old right. you know, were back home raising their kids. And I always envisioned I would really be part of <clears throat> their kids' lives, meaning like on a frequent basis. Mm -hmm. And now I'll see their kids. Like I'll see one of my, two of my best friends will be there this weekend in Fort Worth. They're coming to cheer us on. So I get to see them and their kids. But I for sure, I do miss home. 
Yeah. It's funny. My, uh, so my wife is from Mexico, so she has not been exposed to country music until probably like this summer or maybe a little bit closer to the beginning of the year. And we were listening to George Strait the other day and I had it paused on my Apple. Blame it on Mexico if you need no. a reason. Too much guitar music, tequila, salt, and lime. She probably liked that one. <laughs> so I've got it. I've got it on my Apple CarPlay, and it's Amarillo by Morning. Amarillo by Morning. And English is her second language, and she speaks great English. But yeah. she asked me the next day. I guess that she had just been pondering on it. She's like, "Babe, what does Armadillo by Morning mean?" <laughs> When you think she'd be Mexico, you think she'd been what's yellow by morning mean, right? right. Yeah, because right. Amarillo is the right. is the Spanish word for yellow. So you think she would have gone right there, but no, she completely misread it. So <laughs> like, well, if if she hasn't heard "Blame It on Mexico" by George Strait, you need to allow her to. I don't even know if I've heard that one. It's "Blame It on Mexico" if you need a reason. Too much guitar music, tequila, salt, and lime. Yeah. Blame it on Mexico if you need a reason that I fell in love again for my last time. So it's Mexico's fault that he fell in love again. Right. <laughs> sounds like your sounds like your blessing. That's exactly <laughs> what happened to me. Yes, I've lived down there for three months and met my wife. So it's a good place. So I we had talked a little bit on the phone, and um, you know I think your story as far as wrestling is gone. You know, there's a couple podcasts that you sent me, Slaying Satiev, Coach Jay. I would encourage anybody that wants to know just your background um, to go check those out. Because I think today we're probably going to go a little different route, especially with everything that's gone on with um, some of the UPenn stuff, which you're pretty pretty close to the vest there. And mm -hmm. then, um, some other things that you would uh, express to me that you would like to talk about, and especially like cultural issues. But let's start off with just the... Um, Let's start off with the congressional hearing. So what has been, first of all, why did they need to get uh, brought in before Congress? Because I, I haven't, that was the first thing I saw about the UPenn situation. So has there been, you know, pro-Palestinian protests, you know, anti-Semitic stuff? What's been going on at UPenn that you've seen and that caused them to go in? Well, so just to be real clear, I go down to Penn Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday. The PRTC, we train in Penn's wrestling room. We also train in Drexel's wrestling room. We're, we're a partner with Penn and Drexel, and Drexel's only one block away. So Penn and Drexel are literally like side-by-side -side universities. And um want to be really clear, I, I do not walk up and down campus because I don't have classes there anymore. I'm an alumni, <laughs> but I'm not going to classes anymore. I hang out mostly near the wrestling room. So it's not like I've um, – I've experienced or been part of seeing tons of protests or not. it's not like I videoed and took notes on everything being seen, but I would say just my trust in reading the daily Pennsylvanian, um, listening to students, reading what had been written by many different news sources, not just one is that, you know, clearly Penn was, you know, experiencing a lot of call it pro Palestinian, pro Hamas, anti-Israel protest where Jewish people on the campus, the University of Pennsylvania felt threatened, yeah. felt unsafe. And I, I think that the truth is you could have brought more than just three presidents mm -hmm. to the congressional hearing. I mean, they chose specifically Harvard, MIT and Penn, you know, and as you may know, Harvard and Penn are two Ivy league schools. MIT is one of the best universities in the world as well. You know, they chose they, those three schools, but they could have easily have chosen, you know, many other ones. But for particular reasons that those three schools had definitely had anti-Semitic protests on their campus. And that's where that started, you know, for my opinion. And, you know, the, the congresswoman from New York chose to ask those three presidents uh, the specific questions that she asked them. Now, what was what was the basis behind their they're answering because it doesn't seem like I can't imagine that that's what they believe. Is that streamlined from, you know, the, the board of trustees or the Dean's office? Like how do they come up with those answers? Because I can't imagine if that Congresswoman would have said, is it okay to call for the death of black people or is it okay to call for the death of trans people? Right. Their answers would have been the same. It seems very politically and and even you know us being Christians spiritually driven. What 
what do you see as that like as the the issue there as far as you know, uh, yeah it's really interesting i um you know with with ai now you know artificial intelligence they were able to you know insert on um, that congresswoman's question um as connected to what you just said you know they inserted uh black people the genocide of black people the genocide of lgbtq the genocide um you know of of asian americans and clearly when when it came across that way it 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 sounded as bad to me, just as bad as then when she asked for what do you feel about calling for the genocide of the Jewish people? I mean, it's the point is, is it's all sin. It's all missing the mark. It's all bad. It's all wrong. And, you know, their, their answers, this is my opinion. I believe it's true. I really believe, and I've read some documentation to point to this, is I believe that all three of those presidents I believe they hired a law firm to meet with them to go over go over potential questions they may be asked. I'm sure that those law firms gave them what they perceive to be wise counsel in regards to how to answer those questions. And it seems to me that all three presidents stuck to the script, meaning we, we want to put a flag in the ground for free speech. We don't want to condemn any particular race, country, ethnicity, et cetera. And it seems to me that all three presidents stuck to the script of it depends on the context. And I love the way that, you know, the Congresswoman from New York answered that. So it depends on the context, meaning like until they, they go through with the murder well, of and- all Jewish people, like that's when, that's when it becomes harassment. That's when it becomes wrong. And I, th- I think she did a great job of taking it to that next step. And I would say kind of why I'm just like, speaking on this and passionate about it as a Penn alumni, I I really thought what a fantastic example, no opportunity is the better word. What a fantastic opportunity for former president Liz McGill to separate herself from the other two presidents and say, regardless of what my peers at the other two universities say at the university of Pennsylvania, we believe that the calling for genocide of Jewish people is blatantly wrong. It's harassment. It's evil. It should be condemned, you know, at every uh, every inch of the campus, the University of Pennsylvania. We won't call for it. And any student that's involved in doing that is going to be punished to the point of being um, expelled from school. Right. What if she would have done that, said that? And then the other two, the Harvard president, the MIT president, what if they were stuck to their, depends on context. How would that have made Penn look? How would that have made her as a leader look? I mean, she may have potentially secured her job for the rest of her life at the University of Pennsylvania if she'd actually said that and most importantly lived up to that. Right. So is there, so these demonstrations that have been going on, is that um, because that it's kind of like you know back in COVID times when people were rioting, it's almost like now they have to go back and punish people for things that have already been done or things that have been done. Um, is that playing a, a role in them not condemning? Because I've always understood that free speech is a, a, allowed as long as it's a call to action towards violence, like physical violence, you know, and you know, and and you you brought up a good point that I think it was the Harvard. I think they all said it because they all had a script and it was very clear that they all met with the same people. Um, what it seemed like, correct? Yeah. And, and it seemed like when they were asked, um, she one of the answers, and this was the thing that was most astounding, was she said, uh, if it leads to the action, then it'll be... Well, it's like... And then That's the... Said, so the outright murder? Like, yeah. so you're telling me, so if it leads to the murder... Of a person, that's when it becomes harassment. I think that's when the, you know, Congresswoman, she was just, I think she was in awe. She was shocked. That's why she gave her like, I'm going to give you another opportunity. Like, listen, the answer is yes here. It is harassment. It should be condemned. There should be ramifications. There should be discipline for any person on Penn's campus. Or by the way, Harvard, MIT, or any other university. You know, any place really around our country, I think that we should not allow that. Because yeah, there's there's difference. I mean, in free speech, somebody could be Republican, Democrat, Independent. We have that's the beauty of our country. You have the freedom to say what you want to say, but when you start calling for the, I think a lot of times people don't know what words mean. Right. Meaning, like, I, I think there's chunks of people that don't even know what genocide means. 
Right. They don't understand that genocide means like the total destruction of, in this particular instance, uh, the Jewish people. So it's not just it's not just calling for murder of one person, right? This is the the destruction of all Jewish people, and I think a lot of people are like, oh, you know, you're overreacting. Like, no, uh, we are not people that have the viewpoint that I have. We're, we're not overreacting, and you know, I sense you are. Our, I'm really thankful that our University of Pennsylvania Grapplers Club, which it's it's I would say it's like our booster club for the University of Pennsylvania. You know, our board of advisors. Uh, we came out and we made a, a recommendation. You know, actually, it ended up happening. We recommended that the University of Pennsylvania Board of Trustees would uh, remove, you know, President McGill from her presidency. And the next day, you know, that happened. And this is not some pat on the back for us, for the Grapplers Club, you know, myself, at all. I just think it was the right thing to do. Yeah. And I'm thankful that the next day, she she ended up resigning. Now, and and I'll leave a link to that because I did get a chance to read it, and it was very well written. Um, that letter that you sent me, I believe you tweeted it out, but I'll send a link. I'll put a link um, to that Twitter, uh, that Twitter post down below if anybody else wants to read it. So, but yeah, very well written. Now, was that the only club that had sent, or was is the because Penn? I mean, we're like it's not a great track record with some of this stuff. Like it feels like Penn is really standing on the wrong side of history. You know what they've, I mean, completely obliterated women's sports with the Leah Thomas, like streamline that. Now is this Liz McGill? Is she at the forefront of that issue as well? Cause that's an ongoing thing. I mean, it's almost like the NCAA doesn't know what to do with this issue. Whereas, you know, for guys like you and me, it's, it's very simple. It's, you know, you have, certain chromosomes you're on this side you have certain chromosomes you're on this side like you, you know locker rooms are it's funny i have a um i have a uh, a donut shop in my hometown and and it's not labeled men and women there's a circle donut on the front for the women and then there's like a not a donut what are they like the the long donut for the men it's like, they, they call them like eclairs long johns yeah yeah, yeah. so it, it it seems very like clear but pen is just getting everything and I, I'm not trying to insult. I'm just saying, like it no, seems no, no. the leader. So, so I, I would just say that to be really clear, and I think most people understand this, it's not just the University of Pennsylvania or Harvard or MIT. You know, like I said earlier, you, you could have brought multiple, a plethora of college presidents up there that were having to deal with the same, same issues on their campus. They chose those three. But I think we're seeing now, and it's becoming, we, we've known this, we've talked about this, but I, I think now it's really in our face how, I would say, how liberal and how how far-leaning left that most universities are. Now, maybe I'll miss some, but, I mean, you still have some universities like Hillsdale College of Michigan and Liberty University of Virginia that hold to really strong conservative concepts and somebody like Hillsdale, for example, the reason why they don't take any money from the federal government at all is because they don't want to be controlled by the federal government. Right. But so many of these institutions, um, they, they take, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, right. You know, at corporate, like billions of dollars from the federal government. And, you know, I just share that to say that when, when you have one particular party in place, that's controlling the amount of money that comes to your, your university, right. There's a sense of control and what your worldview needs to be at those universities. And now I think it's becoming more apparent than ever. Yeah. What our universities are teaching, the worldview that that they are espousing, you know, on their campuses. And for I would say, just make it simple. At least half of the Americans, you know, they, they don't adhere right. to that worldview. Well, and yes, exactly. And I think that it's very important, you know, we talk about diversity, diversity, equity, and inclusion. I think that should be more brought into diversity of thought, diversity of backgrounds and worldviews. They say right now that liberal professors outnumber conservative professors 16 to 1. So it's, I mean, it's literally a like, and I'm this isn't like, I, if you're liberal, that's fine, you know, but it's a woke factory going to a college or a university right now. And if you don't have a strong basis, like I went to Oregon state and Oregon state is very much liberal. I was always the only guy in class that would raise my hand and defend an issue, you know, whether it was the pay gap or the bathroom stuff. And I just remember being the only person that would ever raise my hand and it was uncomfortable. 
but I'm a, you know, division one heavyweight. Like I, you know, a bunch of women aren't going to beat me up or shout me down to the point. <laughs> Imagine that as a, you know, just a normal person that maybe likes to be non-confrontational, that's a hard thing to get over. And a lot of times you just end up, especially if you're 18, 19 years old, you just end up, you know, adhering to whatever is being preached to you, you know? Well, I think there's, I think there's a lot of, um, the truth is just ignorance. I wouldn't say stupidity on some of these 18, 19, 20 year olds. Cause I've been that age before. Right. And I'm going to go ahead and throw myself under the bus to like, to connect to this point is that I grew up in Amarillo, Texas. And when I was growing up and, and I'm not proud to say what I'm about to say, but I was growing up. If somebody didn't give me enough ketchup, say the McDonald's, I'd say like, I would say something like, man, they Jewed me out of the ketchup. But let me be really clear. When I was 13 years old, I had no idea that that was connecting to the Jewish people. I had no idea that it was making the point about being stingy. I was totally ignorant to that. Doesn't mean I was stupid. It just means that I was ignorant. And I remember when I got to the University of Pennsylvania as an 18-year-old, and that came out of my mouth one time, and one of my buddies thankfully said, Brandon, what did you say? And I repeated that. He's like, man, you can't say that. And I was like, why? And he explained it to me. And I was like, oh, my gosh, that's what I've been saying? And he's like, yeah, there's probably, this was, you know, back in 1993. So this was, you know, 27, I mean, 30 years ago, Christian, I said this. Um, and that's when about, I think around 40% of Penn's campus was Jewish back then. I don't think that's the case now, probably not going to be the case down the road. But when I said that, it, it was just showing that I didn't know what I was saying. I was ignorant. But when I was educated to what I was saying, that that was a very, you know, rude, mean um, thing to say that I've never said it again, except to make myself look bad. Right. right. But, but, but my point is, is that, you know, these, I don't, I don't think these individuals on these campuses actually know some of the things they're saying. So that was 30 years ago when I was making a fool of myself saying something foolish. But what I mean by today is that some of these people, they're out there yelling, from the river to the sea, but, but I've seen a lot of people walk around and actually ask them like, what river are you talking about? And they'll go like, uh, uh, like you don't even know what river you're talking about. And you're out here like waving this flag. Like you don't even know what you're protesting. And I think they're just being followers. You know, they're just a bunch of like cattle, like they're following all these other people, but they don't even know what they're protesting. And I heard one, one lady yelling from the mountains, to the sea. <laughs> she didn't even know it was the river. Now, clearly the river is the Jordan river. The right. sea is the Mediterranean sea. And the whole point is from everywhere, from the Jordan river, all the way to Mediterranean sea, everything there that was, that's Jewish or Israel needs to be destroyed. Right. And should be owned, you know, by Palestine. But there's a lot of people out there chanting that that have, they have no clue Means, what yeah. they're talking about. And a lot of them, if you gave them a map and you asked them where Gaza was, where Palestine is, you know, where, where Israel is, they, they wouldn't even be able to find it. So my point is there's just a bunch of just cattle, like just sheep, like falling and lying. And they're just, there's, they're very ignorant to what they're protesting. Now you recently were in what, what country did you just get back from? If you can say Kazakhstan, Kazakhstan. Now Kazakhstan is is it Muslim run or is it just mainly Muslim people? No, it's, well, it's pre predominantly, I would say it's, it's predominantly a, a Islamic country. I would say run by, you know, Muslims. The majority of the people you come across that you, that you would see in Kazakhstan would be, you know, they would be a uh, Muslim. Yeah. So how does this, because I've had some, some, so I had a, a teammate, I've, I've had a few teammates, but I had one in particular at one point and, and he made some, he was a Palestinian uh, individual and he had made some remarks about Jewish people that I chalked up to, okay, that was kind of like a funny joke and nothing more, whatever. Now seeing all this stuff, especially since October 7th, it really seems like, no, this is actually a deep seated belief that Jewish people should not exist. And I'm not saying that's how he feels personally. Like if he had the gun, he would be firing it. But within a lot of people's worldview, and especially within a Muslim worldview, you know, adherence to the Quran and the teaching of Muhammad, there is a deep-seated belief that 
Jewish people should not exist. And there are, you know, religious enemies there. What, and I don't know enough about, honestly, Steve would be a better person to ask. He said this entire 60 page thing one time, I read through it about the differences in the faiths. But what is the perception that you've seen? Um, And then if you know anything about the religious ties, um, but just being in Kazakhstan and seeing, you know, being in a predominantly Muslim country, what are some of the the takeaways that you have from there, you know, around this issue, around the Jewish people, like how do they feel about them? What is their cultural um, like takeaway? That was a long question. Yeah. So yeah, I for sure have some thoughts on that. I would say our, our time over in Kazakhstan, which I was there with Jordan Burroughs and Joy McKenna and, you know, thankfully both those guys had a great training camp and, you know, they end up winning the tournament. So it was a great experience from that perspective because that's my job to go over there, right. To coach them, (laughs) to perform. But the blessing is, is that when we go to these other countries, we're not just there to wrestle. Our PRTC mission is to enrich lives locally, this Philadelphia area, but also globally through the sport of wrestling. So when Jordan and Joey and I, we're in Kazakhstan, we're, we're not solely just there to wrestle. We're there to enrich lives over in Kazakhstan. And well, how, how do we do that, Christian? Well, we try to spend time with the local people. Uh, we, we met up with a family that they actually, you know, they, they grew up believing um, they're Muslims, right? They were believing in Islam and they converted to Christianity. So, you know, we spent some time with them and they took us around the town. But we also got to spend some time just with a lot of the wrestlers and coaches, which I believe they would all be, you know, Muslims. And those those wrestlers, the people in Kazakhstan were extremely gracious to us. We had opportunity to go to an orphanage there, which there was about 50 kids whose parents had just totally abandoned them. They had nowhere to go. And so this couple was actually running that orphanage, raising money for that orphanage. We had a chance to speak to the kids over there, spend time with them. So I share that just to say, this is important to know that I just went to a predominantly Muslim country, spent some time with Muslims. Um, they treated us with the utmost respect and utmost kindness. So, so I have that experience. So in no way, shape or form, am I some, you know, person that's like, um, going to treat Muslims poorly or in a negative way. I want to treat all humans the way that I want to be treated because in my worldview as a Christian, that's what God calls me to do is to love my neighbors myself, regardless of whether I believe, you know, in their worldview or not, I'm called to love them and treat them the way I want to be treated. So we did that. It's awesome. But also would say that, the more that you, and we don't have time on this podcast, but the more you dig into why there is so much conflict, I'm going to try to keep this as simple as possible, is that if you go back in Genesis, that that the Muslims and the Jews would both, they would both make the argument that they are come from Abraham, Father Abraham. We sang a song growing up and even, you know, my Christian church, Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham, and I was one of them. And so are you. Anyway, I think Christians, we would say, you know, that we we draw our belief system comes from Abraham. Muslims would say that their lineage would come from Abraham. So Jews clearly would say through Isaac, they came from Abraham. But if you read Genesis, you read the Old Testament, read the Torah, read the Bible, that Abraham and his wife Sarah promised a son and their older age had not happened yet. And instead of continuing to be faithful and trust God, right. Abraham's wife, Sarah, at the time, she encouraged him to sleep with his maidservant, Hagar, which was not his wife. It was sin. He should not have done that. It was a lack of faith that he did that. And she ended up having a son named Ishmael, which was not the son of promise. And then eventually, um, Sarah got pregnant, Sarai got pregnant, and she had a son named Isaac, which in the Hebrew means means he laughs. It's like she had a baby in such such old age. Her and Abraham, it was like funny that she would have a child, right, that old. So Isaac was born, right? And Isaac had Jacob. God changed Jacob's name to Israel after Jacob wrestled with God, right? God blew out his hip, said, now I'm going to change your name to Israel because you've wrestled with God and overcome. So you're no longer going to be Jacob, the deceiver. You're going to be Israel, right? Jacob, Israel had 12 sons. They became the 12 tribes of Israel. That's who populated, right? Egypt, that's who Moses, you know, went in to to bring the people out of Egypt. So without going into more history in that regard, to stop there is that the the Muslim people, they would say that they are descendants of Ishmael, 
and he's the oldest son, therefore it's their land. So they would probably make this argument from the river Jordan to the Mediterranean Sea, right? They would believe that this area, all this area is their land. That whole area of there, not just Palestine, right? But they would say, you know, Jordan and Syria and Lebanon, like all this Iran, all this Muslim area should should be this total um, theologically run by Islam. This area should be all the Muslims land. Well, of course, the Jews are like, no, even though Ishmael, right, was Abraham's son, Isaac was the son from Abraham's wife, Sarah. Isaac is the son of promise. Isaac had Jacob. Jacob's name was Israel. Like, this is our land. We are God's chosen people. This is our land. Now, I know that's a long explanation, but that's where this enmity, this natural friction, this natural hate comes from, because the Muslims say, no, this is our land. And the Jews say, no, this is our land. Like, oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. And that's why there's this enmity, this hate, and this desire to say the Jews don't exist, right? Or the Jews now say, yeah, you as Muslims exist, but it's not your land. It's our land. And so that's where this this hate's coming from. And I would say, too, uh, people that are listening to this, I've just learned this lately, too, that if you if you poll people and say, where does the word anti-Semitism come from? And a lot of people would say, well, it means like, you know, um, a hate of the Jews or not liking the Jews. And I would say, yes, but what where does the word anti-Semitism come from? And most of us know the word anti is against. Right. It's a Semitic languages, right? Semitic languages, but but where does the word Semitic come from? A lot of people don't know this, that Moses had three sons. Right, Ham, Japheth, and Shem, and from that son Shem, Shem, S H E M, came Abraham. From Abraham came Isaac. From Isaac came Jacob. Right, we've already covered this. Right, right. So when says somebody says somebody's anti-Semitic, right? They're saying against the line of Shem, mm. because Shem was the forefather of Abraham. Abraham was the fourth father, right, of Jacob. So an anti-Semitic person is saying, I'm against the line of Shem. Mm. So that's where that word comes from. So if anybody's listening, I thought that'd just be a fun little factoid for them. Interesting. I, I looked it up the other day because I was thinking it was just going to mean anti-Jewish and it, it you know, it's the language or whatever. But I guess I didn't realize you saying that. So Moses was uh, was Abraham's grandfather. Moses well, no. Oh, Abraham was Moses's grandfather. Oh, okay, okay. Never mind. I got. No, I got you're, you're, you're right, right. Moses, you're right, right. Go back. Moses, right, had Shem. Moses had the three sons. Excuse me. Let's back up. We're confusing. Noah, Noah, Noah's three sons. Noah had three sons: Ham, Shem, and Japheth. And right, Noah's okay. sons. We're getting Noah, Abraham, and Moses mixed up. Noah's son Shem, right? Shem end up down this line had Abraham, right? Abraham had Isaac and Isaac had Jacob. Yep. So from that line, that line of Noah. And then Moses. Okay. That I would now we're tracking. Now we're clicking on all cylinders. Figured it out. You confused me, Coach Slay. That's we, my, my bad. We almost had a uh my bad genealogy dispute here. Yeah. So to back up to clear again, you got Noah. Yep. Right? Shem. Shem eventually has Abraham, right? Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob from Jacob. God changed Jacob's name to Israel. He has the 12, right? Um, sons, they became they become the the Israelites. Joseph. But it that it started with Noah. And the reason why we we have to go back and believe that, right? Because Noah had the three sons and their wives, he built the ark, and God judged the world. And those are the only people on the earth at that period of time. Right. Whereas Noah, his wife, his three sons and their wife. So essentially, you had when they got off the ark, there's eight people. Yeah. And the whole entire world was repopulated, Christian, from those eight people. Yeah. Now I have a question because this is something that I've been, you know, I, I try to stay off the news as much as possible. Um, every once in a while I'll see something or I'll listen to a podcast and they cover a, a, a topic. And honestly, that was how I found out about the UPenn situation. Otherwise, I probably wouldn't have seen it or, or talked about it. But it seems to me, especially since COVID, and I don't know if this is a spiritual discernment thing or if this is truly what's going on. Um, or something in the middle there, but it seems to me that with it, there's more and more spiritual battle lines being drawn 
And I think, you know, the Bible talks about, you know, that they will mistake right for wrong and wrong for right. And, you know, the things about the end times, it seems to me that every cultural issue is dividing, you know, it, it starts with you know, liberal conservative, you know, should we wear a mask? Should we not? You know, people are dividing over that. Should we take a vaccine? Should we not? You know, and it's like, as Christians, we see this in a certain way, but now with this stuff with, you know, the anti-Semitism, it seems like it's just another spiritual battle line that's being drawn, almost leading to where we have in other countries where, are you a Christian or are you not? You know, and if you're a Christian, you're going to get persecuted. And that's like how I'm seeing it is it's moving away from conservatism or liberalism to, are you a Christian or are you not? Are you seeing the same thing? And I, I'm kind of airing out this question as I'm saying it. Well, I would say what I'm seeing is that we're really divide, being divided, not so much, you know, 15 different ways, but it's it's really, in general, it's two different ways. And I think it comes back a little bit. I think there is a spiritual nature to it, which I'll speak, which I'll speak to. But I think we really should have listened to our our founding president, like the first president we ever had in the United States of America, George Washington, he strongly warned us against having a two-party system. And I think his wisdom was, if you do that, then you're really going to divide yourself. You know, and here we are in 2023 and it's essentially it's red versus blue. Right. Right. Republican versus Democrat. And as challenging as it is, even when you go to vote, it's almost it's split up and made so easy for you that way. I don't know if you voted late, but when you go to vote, it's just like there's the Democratic side, there's the Republican side. Well, but what happens if you really are more independent? Like for me, because of that red, blue, conservative Democrat, like I don't like to slap a, a Republican um, label on my forehead and just be like, oh, I'm a I'm a Dem- I'm, I'm a Republican. I would rather see myself as like, look, I'm I'm an independent thinker and. I, I want to choose the person I'm going to vote for based on what their beliefs are, based on their policies, not just because like they wave a Republican flag, like, oh, I'm going to vote for them. I really would like to know what they think about right. the environment, what they think about taxes, what they think about um, you know drilling for oil, what they think about same-sex marriage, what they think about abortion, right? What they think about borders, border security, right? I, I want to better understand these individuals. And I would just say, in general, the individuals that are Republicans tend to believe the same things I do about majority of those issues. So I tend to vote Republican. But there are definitely some things, I would say probably more on the environmental side, that you know I would probably be more, I would say more, more liberal on. But for the most part, when it comes to vote for somebody, because the policies tend to be, these conservative policies I believe in tend to be more Republican, that's the way I tend to vote. But I just, I don't like how we're so divided Christian as a country. And <laughs> the answer, the question is like, well, how do we get over that? Like what needs to change? I think it's so challenging for somebody to come in as an independent and win. Yeah. Because that person would have to connect. They would have to connect. Lib- They'd have to connect Democrats. They'd have to connect Republicans in a way that both sides trusted them. And they can end up having the influence to make a difference, you know, in our country. And I would say it's not impossible with God. All things are possible. But I'd say that's what's really challenging is that person would have to have the ability to be able to connect um, on both sides and, and get respect um, and build a consensus on both sides. But back to your question again, like we are divided more than ever before. And, you know, what's sad is that it's 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 hurting families. It's hurting friendships. It's hurting neighborhoods. And I've gotten to the point where I've had to find how can I how can I best manage this? Because the reaction of most people that if you don't agree with them, and I think you would probably like agree with me when I say this. If you don't agree with them, uh, their first reaction is like, well, don't judge me. You're being judgmental. Like, don't judge me. Yeah. And I've had to think about them. Think I'm not judging them. Right. I had to think, what's the best way for me to make my point in a calm, calm, loving, caring way? And I found that uh, this could be a potentially takeaway for you and others because it took me a while to get to this point. Is that I got to the point I thought, you know what? I'm not judging them because what does a judge do? A judge says you're guilty. Here's the punishment. Like I'm, I'm not yelling at them, saying they're guilty. I'm not putting punishment upon them. 
all I'm doing is I, I am calmly disagreeing with them. Right. And there's a big difference. Here's the point. There's a big difference between disagreeing with somebody and judging them, making them feel bad, putting a punishment on them, saying, you know, like a judge would say, like, you're guilty 10 years in prison. Like, I'm not doing that. I'm just calmly disagreeing with you. So, again, I'll make the point again. There's a big difference between judging and disagreeing with somebody. I mean, my wife and I have been married for almost 15 years. We have disagreements. I'm not judging her. I'm just right. disagreeing with her. I have disagreements with my children. I have disagreements with some of my wrestlers I coach. I have disagreements with people in my family. But I love them. I adore them. I would die for all of them, but it's okay for me to disagree with them. And I'm not judging them, but too often it's like we get, Hey, judgy wudgy, you know, judgy wudgy was a bear. Like all of a sudden people want to jump on that train and make you feel like you're a bad person because you disagree with them. Having healthy disagreements is okay. You know, I talked about this with my Bible study recently where, you know, Jesus says they will know you're Christians by your love. And it always seems like we're hearing Christians are so judgmental and Christians are so hateful. And I almost wonder if that's a like a misconception of what's really going on. Now, sometimes it's true, like people can be judgmental. But I know, you know, especially with the trans issue, I had a buddy call out uh, a man, you know, dressing as a woman at church and and just say, hey, listen, you know, I care about you. I, you know, you're you're coming here, but you're living a lie. And this person, you know, went off on a tyrant and said you're a or a tirade and said you're a judgmental, you know, with all this stuff. But my know for a fact, my friend was coming at it from a place of love, and I want you to experience, you know, the fullness that this life and that God has to offer you. And you're coming into church doing this, and nobody's telling you the truth. And so, like, I think that's where, you know, I think a lot of times is, you know, there's obviously it's a case by case thing, right? But when Jesus said, you know, they will know you're Christians by your love, I do think a lot of times that gets misconstrued as being judgmental, being hateful. You're not for us. This is my truth. Who are you? You know, that's so exclusive. And for us as Christians, it's just, we just, you know, we know where life is and we want to point you to it. In a loving way. Right. In a loving way. In a caring, loving way. And, and by the way, a non-judgmental way, meaning I'm not, I'm not going to jam a, a, a big sign right in your face and make you feel like horrible right. or safe or decision you're making. I mean, that doesn't, if I did that with people, my family, that wouldn't bode well for me. Right. right? <laughs> well, I, mean, I, I need, to, I need to connect with them. I need right. to build a relationship with them. They have to know that, that they have to feel loved by me. They have to feel connected with me. And then I've kind of earned, earned the right to speak my opinion, right? right. My belief into their life. And that just tends to go a lot better you know, versus um, attacking somebody, you know, making making them feel unloved, unwanted. And I don't think that's the right way to do it. But unfortunately, in our culture, that's what both sides are doing. You know, right. unfortunately, both sides are doing that. All these protests, they're not handling themselves correctly in that way. You know, all, all of these, um, you know, people, I would say, gosh, being attacked. I mean, lately, this anti-Semitic attack, I mean, people are getting attacked and clearly killed all around the world for what their beliefs are. And you may say, well, gosh, what do we do, Brandon? Like, you right. know, for me, I've read through the Bible many times and the Bible, I believe it's inerrant. I believe it's inspired by God. And as I read the Bible, it, it, it doesn't say that things are going to get better. Right. Right. Things, this makes it clear that things are going to get worse. And that, yep. by the way, that, that God is going to continue to judge a world that's disobedient to him. Right. that continues to live in rebellion to him. You know, there, there is going to be a judgment for those. And I think we're starting to see that happening, but I think what we're called to do is love God with our heart, mind, body, and soul, you know, love our neighbor as ourselves. speak the truth and love, be, be willing to share our testimony, share the truth in a gentle way. And that's, you know, that's all we can do. Right. I'm, I'm nobody's savior. Um, even though your name's Christian, you're nobody's savior, <laughs> but, but your testimony, your, your actions, what you say, what you do, um, that's how people are going to believe whether you're the real deal, whether you're genuine. And we're called to keep speaking truth with grace. And that's a really, that's a really clear distinction because you can say something true, but not say it in a graceful way. Right. And you can be so graceful to somebody, but you're not really speaking truth to them enough. Right. 
So it's it's the marriage of both. We need to be honest and truthful with people, but we need to do it in a graceful way. But the marriage of both of them, I think that's where the power is. Have you ever read the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People? I have not, but I like the title. <laughs> great book. It, it was written in like the 30s and they've revised it because the um, the guy, I'm Dale Carnegie was the author. I think every politician should read this book every year as like a new year's resolution, because it would, I think it would solve so many problems, you know, like you, you know, who Jocko Willink is. Yes, I do. Yeah. I'm sure you think his content is probably pretty imperative, you know, especially like taking extreme ownership and, you know, being able to be accountable. And when you see some of these leaders, um, you know, you see, I, I know you pin did, did McGill, did she step down or was she fired? He resigned. Resigned, but resigned. resigning under pressure is basically getting fired. So I'm guessing that's that's what happened. Well, but so you leave the firing if somebody is is rebellious, right? And they're like, I'm not going anywhere. Right. I, I, I'm not accepting responsibility right. for my words or actions. And if you want me gone, you're going to have to fire me. So I think there is some wisdom that she did show that she could have been, I believe the ego is the enemy, which right. is the title of a book by Ryan Holiday. It's a great book, by the way. And I think if she would have um, been egotistical about it, she could have gotten fired. Yeah. But I think there was some, you know, humility and accepting responsibility that yeah. she showed. And I will for sure, I'll praise her for that. Yeah. When I think you're seeing it like with Harvard and with MIT, they did not resign. They did not get fired. And actually their, their student or not their student body, their alumni association and the faculty has doubled down. And it just seems that in today's culture, there's no, you know, one thing, one of the, there's no ability to take ownership. And one of the biggest things that, you know, my dad, my father taught me was excuses get you nowhere. And like, I've been in rooms where people have been making excuses for why they can't do this or why they can't do that. And it like, it's like nails on a chalkboard. Like I actually had to leave the room. And I just don't think we have that in our higher echelon of leadership, especially with, you know, the country and the higher education system. There is just not a, hey, this was my fault and, and I screwed up and um, I'm willing to take ownership of it. Well, that goes into my favorite definition of leadership. And I, I use this term, which actually I, I didn't make this up to be really clear. I got this from a guy named Mark Miller who okay. worked for Chick-fil-A. He was one of the original, I think he was the 16th employee of Chick-fil-A. And he was responsible for um, setting the culture of Chick-fil-A. Meaning if you've ever been to Chick-fil-A, Definitely. I mean, I haven't been one recently, but there was a period of time. I remember I used to go in when I lived in Colorado Springs. And I mean, right when I get done, say with my dot, Dr. Pepper, somebody walk up like, Hey, can I get you a refill, sir? I mean, there was just, can I get you another refill? Is there anything else you need? How can I help serve you? I mean, that doesn't take place in a lot of other restaurants or fast food restaurants, clearly. So there's something different about that Chick-fil-A culture. And Mark Miller was one of the, I would say he had one of the, the biggest impacts on their culture. And he wrote a book called the heart of leadership, which is a great book, again, by Mark Miller. I encourage any of your listeners to read it. And it's a very simple book, but he he goes through the heart of leadership and he has you know a, a truth that goes on to each one of those letters for the acronym HEART. And the first one is H, just a hunger for wisdom. That means you don't know it all. It's just like you and I, you asked me to be on this podcast or something I can learn from you today. I'm going to, hopefully, humbly, there's things you can learn from me. People that are listening to this podcast, hopefully they're listening to a podcast, hoping to learn something. They're hungering for wisdom. How do you hunger for wisdom? You listen to podcasts, you read books, you know, you read God's word, you pick up a book on the confident, you know, mind. I mean, I could keep going. You just books, podcasts. Oh, by the way, spend time with other people that may be older than you, more experienced than you and ask them questions and learn from them. But you have to hunger for wisdom. Number one, that's H. You don't know it all. You want to know more. The next is to E is to expect the best. And that's somebody with a positive attitude. It's like coming on this podcast today. Like I'm expecting this is going to be a great time. I've never spent time with you, but I'm already having a great time. I mean, I had a positive attitude coming on. I think I can just see it in you. Like you're excited to do the podcast. We're expecting the best in the podcast. I want to expect the best out of the day. I'm going to Fort Worth this weekend. I'm going to expect the best out of my wrestlers versus the opposite is like, man, I can't wait. I got to do this dang podcast with Christian. And you're like, I got to do this podcast with Brandon Slay. And today's going to be horrible. It's like Eeyore the donkey, right? It's like, oh, it's probably going to rain today. I mean, Winnie the Pooh is like, it's going to be a great day. And Eeyore's like, ah, it's probably going to rain. Like Winnie the Pooh expects the best. Eeyore expects the worst. 
So you get a hunger for wisdom. H, E is to expect the best. Now, this A is what we've been talking about that I think that these leaders of these universities aren't doing. A is to accept responsibility. And too many leaders in our culture right now, whether it's the presidents, plural, of the United States in the past, or presidents of universities, or just everyday folks that we come in contact with at, at, a, at a coffee shop that say they brought me the wrong coffee, wrong coffee, instead of saying, hey, I'm so sorry, I made that mistake. I mean, sometimes they'll just go, they're going to make another and they give it to you. And they don't, even, they don't even say they're sorry. They don't even accept responsibility for their simple mistake they made. But great leaders do accept responsibility when you make a mistake. I, I love some some of my favorite interviews, like after a football game, for example, when a coach, let's just say, for example, he didn't prepare his secondary well enough and the other team just had 580 yards passing <laughs> and, and the person comes in and goes, hey, coach, Gosh, they really they really lit your secondary up. Why did that happen? Now, he could go, gosh, those guys, they had all their heads up their butt today. They don't know how to play this game. But the great coaches will go, you know what? I did not prepare them well enough for this team. I take full responsibility for the lack of preparation for my secondary. Today's loss is on me. That's a great leader. Accept responsibility. Hunger for wisdom, expect the best, accept responsibility. R is to respond with courage. Mm. You know, I think I think President McGill, I think she should have accepted responsibility on the interview with Congress and owned it, say we made mistakes, but moving forward, we're not. Yeah. I think she waited too late to accept responsibility. She tried to clear it up a couple of days later, but it was too late. I think by her resigning, you know, she's accepting responsibility to a certain degree, but it was too too late. Think whenever you make a mistake, you have to own it and make the change. And then you have to respond with courage. And responding with courage is during really tough situations, you know, are, are you going to have confidence to go into that battle courageously or are you going to be fearful? Yeah. And then the last thing, the T, having the heart of a leader is, is probably the hardest for most people is to think of others first. Mm. Think of others first. Did those presidents uh, of those universities, did they think of others first when they gave those answers? As people were calling for the genocide of Jews and and, and Antifada uh, and shouting from the river to the sea on campuses where people are fearful for their lives, are they thinking of others first? I don't think so. And so I think when somebody's a, a, a true capital T leader, they have the heart of a leader. And those are the type of leaders that I want to follow. Those are the type of leaders that are going to make a difference in our world, the difference in our culture. That's the type of leader I hope we can have one day as the president of the United States. But unfortunately, um, we haven't had that in a while. Yeah. And, and, and I will just say with a caveat, obviously I'm a conservative, I'm a Christian, but I do not think Trump has been that either. And and uh, and he's not a a great unifier like uh, people on the right like to believe that he should be. Um, Doesn't connect people. Does he think of others first when he when he nicknames them and calls them names? That's not thinking of others first, right? Right. When you, when you mess up, is he accepting responsibility when he does make mistakes? The uh, yeah. And the the issue is that it's going to take fifteen to twenty candidates that probably don't get the job but are willing to say, I'm not going to insult the people on this podium. I'm not going to do X, Y, and Z to get the social media trolls to post on, you know, post me. I am going to have respect. I mean, this is what Lincoln wrote about in, you know, or wrote about in some of his manuscripts. Like he refused to insult his political opponents. He refused to insult even Grant or not Grant. Um, oh, who was the Confederate general? Robert E. Lee. Lee. Yeah. He refused to even insult Lee, which is just crazy to think about. This guy is literally on the side of slavery and, and Abraham Lincoln is refusing to insult him publicly. And you just think, you know, how far have we come that we, we get on a bashing campaign for people on our side of the political party. So it, it doesn't help. And it, it probably would take about 15 to 20 candidates to the point where the culture starts to change in that direction. So, well, it just, I'm sure you're with me. I, I talked to a lot of people that we're just in in such amazement that 
I know so many phenomenal leaders. And if there's 300 million people in this country, it just blows my mind <laughs> that we can't come up with um, a better leader to run for the most powerful leader, right, in the United States of America. And I hope one day we'll have somebody that hungers for wisdom, expects the best, accepts responsibility, responds with courage, but thinks of others first, regardless yeah. of whether you agree with them or not. Right. Right. Brandon, you got 10 more minutes or you got to get I going? Do. I go 10 more minutes. There was something what you brought up in the um, in our first uh, conversation over the phone and uh, and I'd kind of asked you about it, but um, you said the three P's struggle, uh, the three struggles, pleasure, possessions, and powers. And I really want to dive into this because, you know, I kind of put a fourth P in there. It's more of like a, a side, but uh, like pornography, I know was a big part of my story. And that goes in obviously into the pleasures side of things, but just specifically. Um, and I think that's kind of what you meant as far as like what you're talking about. But I do want to dive into this a little bit if we have 10 minutes, because that's where I want to take my platform at some point is fighting that issue specifically. For sure. So I've, I've had the honor of speaking at, at multiple churches and when they do ask me to speak and they say, Hey, what would you like to talk about? This is, this is the topic that I like to speak on. Mm -hmm. And the reason I'm really passionate about it is that, in 2023, this has been going on for a while. We use this term worldview. Like, what's your worldview? And then you end up going, to, what do you mean? My view of the earth? My view of the planet? Like, no. What, the, the review, your view of human nature and the world and how they see this world, right? Spinning around the sun. Like, the, the cultures and the viewpoints and the beliefs they share. That's what your worldview is. And, you know, if you look at First John 2, 15 through 17, the apostle John says, do not love the world or anything in the world. Right. And then you're, if your brain's listening to that, you go, uh, what do you mean, John? What's the world? And he ends up defining it. Right. He said, the world are three things. And he calls it the, he calls it the um, cravings of the sinful nature. The next one is the lust of the eyes and I'll explain these in a moment. And the third is the pride um, of life, a boasting of what a man has and does. So cravings of the sinful nature, um, the lust of the eyes, and a boasting of what a man has and does. Again, that's lots of words. And so I think to simplify that, I think the cravings of the sinful nature, I'm going to call that pleasure, right. whether that's pornography, because I think that would be a craving of a sinful nature, right? Whether that's pornography, but I also think that can be gluttony. You know, that can be alcoholism. It could be drug addiction, right? You're wanting to feel good. The cravings of your sinful nature, you want pleasure to escape from the world, to escape from struggles you're having, right? You want to feel good. So I'm going to call that pleasure. You know, the next one is, is the lust of the eyes, which you see something. I think really what John's describing, you see something and you want that thing. So you want to possess, I want that truck. I want that house. I want the mountain home. I want the beach home. You know, I want that job. Um, I want that Olympic gold medal. <laughs> I want that state title. I want the NAA title. Um, I want the presidency, whatever it may be. And so I think the, the lust of the eyes is, is possessing something it's possessing things or titles. So that's possessions. And then the boasting of what a man has and does, I would say, or a woman, right. Is, is power. You want power. You know, it's the pride of life. You want the, you want to be seen as something, you know, bigger than you are. You want more power. And I think those three things, Christian, are three of the biggest problems on our planet, on the world. Yeah, you're right. right. If somebody has that worldview of like, don't talk to me about pleasure. If it feels good, do it. Right. Possessions, I'm, I'm going to try to accumulate as many possessions as I want. Power, it's all about, right, who has the biggest title. Like, no, all those are lies. And... John goes on to say that if you love the world or anything in the world, he says the love of God's not in you. Then, then you're not aligned to God if you're loving and chasing after the world. And I think that that is a that's a great realization. But then you would love to like, are there other cross references in the Bible? And I think in God's sovereignty there are. And I think what's really interesting in Matthew chapter four, 
when Jesus had been fasting, not eating in the desert for 40 days, and he comes out, I'm sure that, you know, he was a weekend and um, he was, uh, I would say, probably temptation was going to be more of a struggle for him. And I think that's when Satan tempted him, but he tempted him. It's interesting, Christian, with three things. He hadn't eaten for 40 days. The very first thing he tempted him was, was bread. Because again, if you haven't eaten, you eat that bread, it's going to make you feel better, right? There's this temptation of pleasure. You haven't eaten, I'm sure the, the number one thing you're probably tempted by right now is food. Right. So pleasure. And he says, hey, can't you turn that rock into bread? He's tempting him with pleasure. Jesus responds with the verse out of Deuteronomy. He responds with God's word. Satan moves on to the next temptation. You know, he tempts him with possessions. He's like, if you, if you bow down to me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. You can possess all the kingdoms of the world. Jesus responds with a verse out of Deuteronomy, right? He responds to God's word. Satan moves on to the last temptation when he tempts him, and he tempts him with power. He's like, don't you have the power if you jump off this cliff to have legions of angels come and save you? Don't you have the power to do that? So it's just interesting to me that John's talking about the world in those three ways. Satan tempts Jesus with pleasure, possessions, and power. And it's also just kind of interesting to me, too, if you go back to the original sin, Adam and Eve in the garden. You know, what does Satan tell her? If you eat that fruit of that tree of knowledge of good and evil, it's going to taste good, pleasure, pleasure, right? Taste good, right? If you if you possess it, if you have it, right, it's going to fulfill you. And oh, by the way, when you eat of it, you will know and be like God. You'll have power. So from my perspective, I think Satan, when he tempts us, I think, again, as wrestlers, to use our language, if I'm wrestling, thinking about kind of like having this this struggle with Satan, if I understand that he's going to attack me with pleasure, possessions, and power, then I'm better prepared to defend my defense. If I'm like, I have no clue, is he going to shoot a single leg, a high cross, a double leg? Is he going to try to throw me? Like, I don't know. But if I know distinctly what his number, his top three moves are – I'm more prepared to defend against that and become more successful, right? And win those win those daily wrestling matches. Yeah, especially if you've lost to him a hundred times in the past, you start to yeah. build up some data and you start to figure yeah. it out. So, yeah. Well, hey, Brandon, thank you so much, man. This was, I'm going to say it. This was a pleasure, but I think it it's <laughs> use the word. So I don't think it's one of the worldly pleasures. No, this was this was amazing, and I really appreciate you uh, coming on the show. Um, very just big. I mean, obviously, I'm a little too young to have been your fan at the time, but I'm a big fan of what you've done. I'm a big fan of um, the leadership that you've instilled in some of these younger guys that are coming up. And uh, you know, I've I've watched you know probably all the guys that you've coached in the last ten years. Um, my boss is one of your former wrestlers. And uh, nobody, nobody leaves your room unscathed, and that's um, in a good way. So thank you, man, just for being such a great guy, such a great leader, um, great husband and father. I'm sure you are, uh, and you know you are uh, somebody that people should aspire to be more like. So thank you, buddy. Well, thanks, Christian. I'll just close by saying, you know, after that talk on pleasure, possessions, and power, if there's an application, you say, well, dang, if I'm getting attacked by that, what the heck do I do? Right. I think it's important just for me to close by saying that. If that's happening, by the way, it happens to all of us. Right. Even once you become a Christian, you're not immune to the attacks. Sure. I would just say if that's you and you're struggling with that, then you need to do four specific things. You need to get into, can't see it, but you need to you need to get in God's word, Bible study. You need to pray, have communication with God, ask him to help you. Yeah. Ask him to be there with you. Ask for his strength, not yours. So Bible study, prayer, um, worship. And that's not just singing songs. That's a thankful attitude for all you've been blessed with every single day. You can worship in song, but you also can worship just with thankfulness, having a heart of thanksgiving. So worship. And the last one is, is uh, really important is to have fellowship. Yeah. It's just like you and I today, we're having this fellowship and speaking about truth and encouraging one another. You need to have that with other brothers right, in your life, sisters in your life, and hold each other accountable of the things you're struggling with. Be honest and candid and transparent and vulnerable with those individuals so they can pray for you. So they can encourage you because uh, we all struggle in all those three things. If you try to, if you try to uh, succeed on your own without Bible study, prayer, worship or fellowship, I would say, yeah, to follow your hand gesture, you're going to get tanked. You're going to get destroyed. You're going to sink and 
your life is not going to be joyous. Yeah. No, that that's what I specifically when I was saying, you know, porn was part of my past. It was part of my past. That was who I was. I'm no longer that because I got into a fellowship. I got accountability. I got the blocks on my phones. I've got, you know, people keeping up with what I'm doing and you cannot do it alone. If so, if, again, I'm just going to reiterate what you're saying. If you are struggling with any of these things, you cannot, cannot, cannot do it alone. There's no possible way. There might be some people, some outliers out there that can will their stuff, but I would fair to say it's not a true addiction. It's just something that you like to do. If it truly is deep to your core and your spirit, you need help. So thank you for saying that. I appreciate that, Brandon. Doesn't take much to be a Christian. It takes everything. Yeah. yeah. It takes nope. everything. Coach Slay, I appreciate you coming on the podcast, man. Thank you take so care, much. Take care, Christian. Bye-bye. Yep.